Can you all read this? Sin. Sin! Yes. So if you guys want to get into groups of two, I don't know how my math is. So I'm going to give you guys each a little coffee filter with sin on it. <laughs> and so what I got is three different bleach for the oldest. They'll be more responsible. But I got four different types of cleaning things here. So I'm going to give you guys 30 seconds to try and clean sin. Sound good? So this is water and soap. Who wants water and soap? Nice. You two want that? Awesome. Do you want bleach? Yes. Yes. Oh, whatever. I got more bleach. And then we got Lysol wipes. And we got Purell. So you guys got, you guys got 30 seconds, and here's paper towel, to try and clean off sin. And as you guys are doing that, I'll talk over you guys and with the parents. I'm going to list off some key figures in the Bible um, that are well known, and you tell me what their sin was. Uh, Abraham. Sorry? Disbelief? Uh, David. Murder? Okay, guys, slow down. <laughs> uh, what about um, Paul? Murder. Murder again? Yeah, that's a key. Saul? <laughs> Old Testament Saul? Murder. Murder? <laughs> Gotta some, someone who else isn't murder. Um, Judas? Betrayal? Oh, he didn't go for murder. Second degree murder. Second degree murder. Um, what about... <clears throat> what about... Uh, uh, Ananias and Sapphira. Lies. Apostasy. And so as we go through, everybody in the Bible, except for Jesus, has some sort of sin attached to them. And it's impossible for them themselves to get rid of that. So you kids got 10 seconds to finish. And then we're going to present it to everybody. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, Three, two, one. Pencils down. Pencils down. <laughs> okay. Can you guys hold up your coffee filter to everybody? Oh. <laughs> so as we can see, as hard as we've tried, it's impossible for us to get rid of sin on our own. And as we're going to read today in Revelation, something that God gives his people, as much as they try and get rid of sin on their own, he gives them each something. And so if you guys listen through this, I'm going to give you guys each a clean coffee filter just for fun. Um, Bert, you want to hand those out? Yeah. So as we're going to read through Revelation, if you guys want to pay attention as we sit through the service today, at the very end, we're going to see that God sees a church that's in sin, but he doesn't stain it themselves. He actually gives them something new. He gives them white clothes, white clothes to wear in the enter heaven because Sin can't enter heaven, so God himself provides that purity for us. Thanks. You guys can grab a seat. All of my old youth pastor points coming up there. You guys like coffee filters? <laughs> okay. Yeah, you can do that. I didn't think past this part. Okay. Now, for everybody again, we're going to continue through uh, our walk through Revelation today. We're going to continue through the churches here. And as we look at Sardis today, uh, we're going to 
look at the city as a whole before we get into the text. And there's nothing about this city that kind of would draw us to it, like architecturally. So Ephesus, for example, had this huge temple to Artemis. It was a beautiful temple. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So Artemis was your goddess that you worshipped. At one point in your life, you traveled to Ephesus to worship him. Another similarity would be uh, Smyrna. They didn't have just one temple. They had many temples to many different gods. And these temples were scattered all throughout uh, Smyrna there. And they actually had a temple to a living emperor, and that was their kind of claim to fame for a while. As we look at our text today, Sardis, there wasn't anything architecturally um, or geographically really that would make you want to go visit that city. The closest it gets is that this city was kind of situated on a hilltop, um, kind of like a fortress town. And so that was kind of cool because it had this almost idea of, you know, strategic importance. We're on a hill so we can see attacking armies and they can't capture us. But unfortunately, this city had a bad reputation. And uh, just for fun, what event comes to mind when I say ho, ho, ho? Christmas. Christmas. And in the Calgary context now, if I were to say yee-haw, what comes to mind? Have Yeah, <laughs> all of them. And if I were to say come hell or high water, what event comes to mind? The flood. The flood. Because <laughs> there's sometimes that we, in a, in a city context, we associate different sayings or different words with events that have happened. And likewise in Sardis, they had an event that happened that would have brought something similar. So although they were of strategic importance on a hill, twice in the city's history, they've been captured due to their watchmen falling asleep on the wall. So they would have had sayings like, hey, stay awake, keep your eyes open, don't fall asleep. Kind of like a, a wink, wink, nudge, nudge, like, hey, remember when we lost our city? That was fun. Hey, let's not do that. And so they had these local sayings that floated around Sardis. <clears throat> and as we look at Sardis, and as we look at all the churches, similar themes that come up are um, the external pressures bearing down on the church itself. So, and there are usually three. You got persecution, which is usually imprisonment, slander, or martyrdom. Um, you have uh, idolatry. You're worshiping at church with your church line, but then you're going to the temple to worship idols on other days. Or you have um, false teachers coming into the church. And as we're going through this, it's sometimes hard for us to put ourselves in that mindset of what does that feel like? How do we put ourselves into those shoes? Because we don't really have a good framework for persecution, idolatry, or false teachers. But as we look at Sardis today, we're going to look at a church that doesn't have any of that. This church won't have any external pressures bearing down on it. And so at least for me, I found this church probably the easiest for me to relate to in terms of what's going on because I've never experienced idolatry or false teachers or, or persecution like that. So if you'll turn to Revelation 3, 1 through 6, we're going to read a church, read about a church that although has no external pressures bearing down on it, uh, it still finds itself in jeopardy. So if you turn to Revelation 3, 1 through 6, and you'll stand and read with me, please. <clears throat> Revelation 3, 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. 
I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard, and keep it, and repent, uh, and wake up. And if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So the letter opens, as all the letters open, with a cryptic self-description from Jesus himself to the church. And it's a description that's not, um, that's not random. It's, there's a point to Jesus saying why he's the one who holds, has the seven spirits of God and holds the seven stars. Now, lucky for us, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. And both of these things are mentioned in other places in Revelation. So in Revelation 1, chapter, or 1 verse 20, John actually spells out what these seven stars are. And these seven stars are the seven angels. <clears throat> seven angels of the churches. So God is saying, I am he who holds these angels associated to your churches. I am he who orders them and commands them. And the seven spirits are also referenced. But the reference in, in uh, chapter 5, you just want to flip the page or whatever and look at Revelation 5, uh, 6. Revelation 5, 6. Revelation 5, 6. And between the throne and four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, uh, with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. Uh, and the seven spirits, sorry, uh, and with the seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And it's hard for us to kind of wrap our head around this, and so I've got a picture to show you. Because um, my green group about 18 months ago, we, we went through Revelation, we decided to draw out each chapter. And I got a, a beautiful representation of chapter 5 here that I want to show. Because uh, if you ever stayed awake at night wondering what uh, heaven's going to look like and what especially chapter 5 is going to look like, uh, this is probably something that's going to look like. <laughs> so get ready to sleep well tonight. So as you can see, we've got the elders and we've got the living horsemen. And, and, uh, and uh, we're going to get into this stuff in the new chapters. But here we got the, the lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. So obviously this is what we're all picturing, right? <laughs> so get ready to sleep well tonight. But I don't think John is actually talking literally here. And thank goodness, because this is terrifying. I'll take that off. But I don't think John is talking literally. He's talking symbolically. He's talking symbolically because he's getting this from the Old Testament. These seven spirits and the seven eyes of God that go across the earth is actually a direct reference to Zechariah 4.10, which is almost verbatim what it says, that the eyes of God roam across the face of the earth. And he's saying this because he's saying that God knows all. He sees all that's happening on the earth. It's kind of like when you were little and you tried to get away with something behind your mom's back. You go, how did you know when you get in trouble? She says, I have eyes in the back of my head. <laughs> yeah, this is the spiritual equivalent to that. She's saying, I have eyes that see all across. And when he says this to the church of Sardis, he says, I see your works and I see your reputation, but I also see past that. 
I see who you really are, and spiritually, you are dead. And I remember when I said that all of these churches seem to have external troubles and pressures bearing down on it. Well, it's interesting that this church doesn't, yet Jesus himself says, you guys are dead, and I'm going to come against you here. And it's a big deal because we would assume that a church that isn't facing any of these external pressures or troubles would be like a Philadelphia or a Sardis or a, or a Smyrna, churches that are doing well and vibrantly thriving. But that's not what we have in front of us here. That's not the letter we have. In front of us here, we have a letter from a father to his church full of concern for their spiritual status. And what we see here is that the church in Sardis is doing Christianity, whatever that looks like. They're doing all the right stuff, but there's no substance behind it. As he says there in verse 1, you guys have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Now, regardless of uh, reputation, like that's something we can all relate to, but it's an earthly repu reputation that God is talking about here. Um, most of us here in our work circles, in our school circles, or our friend circles, we probably have pretty decent uh, reputations. Ones that we're proud of, ones that we feel we can coast off of in those circles. And that's great if you have that. But some of us may not have great reputations at work, because maybe we've messed up recently or we said something that has diminished our reputation. And praise God that he doesn't count that against us. Now, when I left the church I worked at in Ontario, I didn't have a great reputation leaving. There was a lot of um, unhealthy mess that went on that, that all got swept up. and I didn't have a great reputation among people there. But I worked really hard to follow God and walk through it as best I could, honoring Him. And again, praise God that He cares about how we live our life and not our earthly reputation. Amen? And I don't know what you, but if you've talked to somebody about Christianity, you've been sharing um, who Jesus is with them, at one point or another, this comment usually comes up. Well, I've usually done, I've done so much evil that I don't think God can forgive me. Or how can I come to God when I have all this wrong stuff that I've done? That usually comes up in one way or another. And that's come up with me in my conversations with people over the years. And again, all of us can relate to at one point or another, we've had a reputation that we're not stoked about. One that we wish we could just forget about. And luckily, God looks at us, and he doesn't let that earthly reputation sway us one way or the other. If we have a horrible reputation, if we're stained like the coffee filters, he's not letting that sway the balance of his judgment in the end. And on the flip side, if we have a, a super righteous and great reputation on earth, that's not swaying him in judgment. Um, Zacchaeus is an example of somebody who had a horrible earthly reputation. A reputation where everybody hated him as a tax collector. He was somebody who uh, just took from people and exhorted money from people, and yet when he encountered Jesus, he sought Jesus and invited him to his house, and he changed. There was a real change in Zacchaeus' life, and he gave back four times as much to anybody that he wronged. Now, Zacchaeus wasn't doing this to change his reputation. He was doing this because he encountered the living Jesus, and he wanted a life that changed, and reputation followed from him. On the flip side, Saul, who later turned Paul, was someone who had a great earthly reputation. He had a reputation among the Jewish people and the scribes and the Pharisees as someone who was um, rising through the Pharisee ranks very quickly. 
He was circumcised on the eighth day. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, and yet, even with that earthly, stellar reputation, God would have said, but Saul, you're dead. You're dead inside. And I'm not saying that a good relation, Matthew 10, 30 says, if you can among men confess your name 